On behalf of Fed Insider and Kerasoft, we would like to welcome you to today's podcast, focused around election security, protecting the foundation of our democracy, where our panel of election security experts will discuss the challenges, successes, and lessons learned from the 2020 election. And hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us today. I'm John Breeden, and I will be moderating what I know will be a lively and interesting discussion about our election processes and the various threats that were arrayed against this foundation of our democracy during the recent election. Prior to the 2020 election, Fed Insider hosted a series of three webinars on election security. During those programs, which are all available now in the archives for streaming, Experts talked about the various threats and potential problems that they anticipated would happen as the election was drawing near, and some of the ways that they plan to mitigate those threats and protect this critical process. Some of those guests are back today uh, with for our post-election show, and we also have a couple of new uh, panelists with unique views about the recent election. They will all be talking about what went right during this election, what they learned, and how we can work to ensure that future elections are also kept safe and protected. Because of having such a large and esteemed group of speakers on the show today, it will run for 90 minutes instead of the normal 60. This is a critical topic, but no worries, because we have seven highly experienced experts to break it all down for us. So let me welcome each one of them, and then we can get started. First off, I wanted to welcome Justin Herring. He is the Executive Deputy Superintendent of the New York Department of Financial Services. Welcome back to the forum today, Mr. Herring. Thank you. Um, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. And let me also welcome the Supervisor of Elections for Okaloosa County, Florida, Paul Lux. Paul, welcome back to the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, glad to be back. Excellent. And we are also pleased to welcome Justin Bernardino. He is the Operations Manager for the Orange County Register of Voters. Mr. Bernardino, it is an honor to have you joining us again today. Thank you. Happy to be here. We are also pleased that uh, Commissioner Ben Hovland, the Chairman of the U.S. Election Assistance Commission, is joining us again today. Ben, it's an honor to have you joining us once more for this very important discussion. Thanks, John. Great to be back. Great. And that takes care of the introductions to our uh, veterans, but we also have three new guests joining us today. The first is Jeff Hale. He is the director of the Election Security Initiative at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's National Risk Management Center. Welcome to the show today, Jeff. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And our other new, brand new guest is Lewis Robinson. He is the Vice President of Elections Operations at the Center for Internet Security. It's a pleasure to have you with us today, Lewis. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the time to uh, be on this panel with the other members. Well, we're really glad to have you here. And our industry represented today is the Chief Security Officer for OCTA, Sean Frazier. Sean, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, John. It's great to be here. And it's OCTA, not like okra, but OCTA. Uh, OCTA, gotcha. <laughs> no, no problem. <laughs> no worries. Thank you, thank you my friend. Uh, excellent. Um, so we have some great questions about the cybersecurity threats that you all face this year, as well as some of the unique challenges uh, that uh, the 2020 election brought. Um, but we have such esteemed panelists, um, I wanted to remind our audience uh, about some of our guests' experiences and the organizations they represent. So I want to give a little bit of time to each one of our panelists just to kind of talk about who they are and what they did uh, during the recent election, and then we can get into the meat of the presentation. So, Mr. Herring, let's start with you. 
Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you do as the executive deputy superintendent of the Department of Financial Services for the great state of New York, where you also lead the newly created cybersecurity division? Can you tell us a little bit about what you do there and the size of the constituency that you serve? Certainly. Um, yeah, thanks, John. And I think you've already kicked it off there. The, the Department of Financial Services, or DFS, is New York State's financial services industry regulator. Um, so that covers industries, that covers parts of the industry like banking companies, insurance companies, money transmitters, cryptocurrency companies, and others. Um, our responsibility is to ensure the safety and soundness of the financial services industry and protect consumers. Um, we regulate over 3,000 institutions uh, that have a combined asset of, assets of more than $7 trillion. Uh, we see cybersecurity as the biggest threat to the financial services industry, and we are you know, proud to have been a leader in cybersecurity standards for the industry. Our cybersecurities regulation for the financial services industry in New York, when we adopted it in 2017, was the first of its kind. Um, and we're proud that it's become a model for other regulators like the FTIC, FTC and the NAIC. The cybersecurity division at DFS was established in 2019 uh, when I joined DFS to serve as the first head of the cybersecurity division after having been a cybercrimes prosecutor in the New Jersey and Maryland U.S. Attorney's Office. Cybersecurity division were really devoted to raising the bar for cybersecurity across the financial services industry and handle, you know, regulatory guidance cyber incident reporting and response um, and enforcement action. Uh, now, as a New York state official, I also work with my colleagues across the state government and beyond on cyber issues that have uh, an impact on New York, um, its government, uh, as well as its citizens and consumers. Um, and election security has been a big priority for the state for a number of years now. Um, and the state has taken you know, an all hands interagency approach, brought together expertise and resources from different sources. So although my department, the Department of Financial Services, does not have a formal role in the New York State government's um, handling of elections, as part of that um, cross-state effort and focus on election security, um, I've been working on election security issues with my colleagues across the state since I first joined the state government in 2019. Great. Well, thank you, Mr. Herring, and I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more from you uh, as the uh, show proceeds. Paul. Uh, we learned from you during the previous show that Okaloosa County is an absolutely beautiful place right along the Gulf Coast of Florida, and you also have 180,000 residents who live there, so it's not a tiny population. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do as a supervisor of elections and the ways that your constituents normally vote there? Certainly. So uh, here in Florida, every one of our counties has a supervisor of elections. The vast majority of us are elected, not appointed, so... Uh, and we get to run in the year of the president. So for some of us, we also had to juggle our own political campaigns in addition to trying to manage all of the elections and COVID and everything else. But each supervisor of elections is responsible for uh, everything to do with the election, soup to nuts, for any local, state, or federal election. Uh, so all of the voter registration, all of the ballot layout and design, the delivery, the tabulation, the reporting, the auditing, all of that falls under the umbrella of each one of us individual supervisors in the 67 counties. Um, as we saw, you know, like everybody else, we typically not quite a third here in my county, people voting, some by early voting, some by mail, uh, and some on election day, we typically tended to have a slightly lower turnout for vote by mail and a slightly higher turnout for election day. 
and of course COVID-19 considerations, which I know we're going to talk about later, uh, certainly changed that picture. Uh, we ended up with uh, an additional 15,000 people voting by mail this time around, an extra 10,000 who attended early voting, which gave them the opportunity to space things out over over a couple of weeks before the election. And our uh, election day turnout was actually so severely reduced that my poll workers were a little terrified of what was going on because they had never had a presidential election year that was so slow. Amazing. Well, thank you, Paul. We'll learn a little bit more about uh, some of the things you mentioned in the show in just a bit. Mr. Bernardino, you are the operations manager for the Registry of Voters in Orange County, California, the sixth largest county in the United States, with a population larger than 21 United States or U.S. states. Uh, in a previous show, you talked about the complex election issues in your county. Can you refresh our memory about that, as well as talk a little bit about your job responsibilities there in Orange County? Yeah, so we're complex in size, as you mentioned. Uh, we are up to 1.8. Uh, million registered voters. Um, we're also complex in the sense that we do our own printing and mailing. So if you think about the 1.8 million voters, we have to print their ballots, we print their voter information guides, we handle all the mailings. In addition to that, you know, we've had a lot of attention from parties and the media because our county's demographics have been becoming more, there's been more and more parity to our, our demographics, and the party registrations are pretty much split. In 2018, some congressional seats flipped that were the same party forever, as long as anyone can remember, and then some of those flipped back in 2020, so we get a lot of that attention. Additionally, my responsibilities uh, includes the operations of all those things, you know, we mentioned the mailings, the voting, uh, the technical side, voter services, printing, and all the elections operations. Excellent. Well, thank you, Justin, for that for that overview of what is must be a complex operation with a, a very big county. Ben, welcome back to the show to you. If some of our audience does not remember, the Election Assistance Commission is an independent agency of the federal government that was created by the Help America Vote Act of 2002. Can you tell us a little bit about what your agency does and your role as its chairman and as a commissioner? Thanks, John. Yeah, I know a lot of uh, or a number of people may not be that familiar with the Election Assistance Commission or EAC. As you mentioned, we were created by the Help America Vote Act of 2002, uh, which was basically Congress's response to the 2000 election. That legislation created the EAC as a bipartisan independent agency with a number of responsibilities, uh, including the testing and certification of voting equipment. Uh, we distribute grant money from Congress to the states uh, for election issues. Uh, in 2020, we distributed over $800 million to the states, uh, with about $425 million of that being for election security, and then another $400 million of that being related to uh, the CARES Act for money to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. And we serve as a national clearinghouse on best practices in election administration, uh, which also includes conducting the Election Administration and Voting Survey, or EVES, uh, which I'll talk about a little bit more later, but is the only national survey of its kind that looks at how Americans are getting registered and voting. Great. Well, thank you for that overview. And I'm sure we'll hear a lot more from you moving forward. 
Jeff Hale leads the Election Security Initiative at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which most people just call CISA. He works at the National Risk Management Center. Jeff, you've been involved in CISA's election security mission since 2016. Can you tell us a little bit about that mission and CISA's key activities in this mission space and who you work for and who you work uh, with in support of that mission? Thanks, John. Thanks again for having me. Um, that's all correct. We got involved, DHS designated election infrastructure as critical infrastructure back in 2017, uh, largely in recognition of the importance of the integrity of those systems and, and the threats that they may face. Since that time, uh, CISA uh, has made election security a top priority. My job is really to work closely with election officials and vendors to help support them in managing the risks to their systems. That's kind of why we sit in the National Risk Management Center. To do that, we coordinate providing clearances and access to threat intelligence. We have no-cost cybersecurity services, physical security assessments. We give planning, risk mitigation guidance, training, and exercises. We partner with a lot of the people on, uh, uh, on this call and in order to provide the information necessary for our election stakeholders to make the most informed uh, risk management decisions possible. Makes sense. Thank you, Jeff. Lewis Robinson is the Vice President of Elections Operations at the Center for Internet Security. He is responsible for advancing the mission of CIS's Elections Infrastructure Information Sharing and Analysis Center and has a deep history in cybersecurity where he has supervised cybercrime investigations, cyber incident response, digital forensics, and initiatives that mitigated the risk of cyber attacks against critical infrastructures. Lewis, can you tell us a little bit about that and what the Center for Internet Security does and also what was its role in the recent election? Thanks again, John, for the intro. Many participants may be familiar with CIS, but for those who don't, CIS is an independent and trusted nonprofit cybersecurity partner of public and private organizations around the world. Our best practices are complemented by the threat intelligence from our Security Operations Center, truly the heart of the CIS mission. And that SOC supports the Multi-State Information Sharing and Analysis Center, our MSISAC, and the Elections Infrastructure Information Sharing and Analysis Center, EIISAC. CIS and ultimately the EIISAC role was uh, born out of the 2016 general election in the aftermath. Uh, DHS, uh, NAS, NASED, the EAC, as well as local election organizations with CIS discussed the possibility of creating an ISAC devoted solely to the nation's elections infrastructure. So in 2017, DHS agreed to conduct a pilot elections ISAC with seven states. That pilot proved successful. And in 2018, DHS and the Election Infrastructure Subsector Government Coordinating Council, quite a mouthful there, tasked CIS to stand up the elections infrastructure ISAC. Thanks to leveraging the services offered and experiences gained through the MSISAC, uh, the EIISAC, we've uh, become fully operational with all 50 states and D.C. participating in the ISAC. We currently have 2,900 total members, including the election vendor community. We provide the election officials and their technical teams with regular updates on cyber threats, cyber event analysis, cyber education materials, and support their very important task of conducting elections. Thank you, Lewis. That was a great story. Uh, I look forward to hearing more about it a little bit more into the show. Sean, you are the CSO for Okta, and you have worked in cybersecurity in the private and public sector for over 20 years, 
including projects in the DOD, intelligence community, and civilian agencies, including uh, DHS, DISA, and many others. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do now for OCTA and your experience and interest in election security specifically? Sure, absolutely. So I work in the security organization at OCTA where I'm primarily focused on our public sector business and our public sector practice. Um, and, and Octo, for, so everyone knows, we're, in a, we're kind of a modernized identity provider in the cloud. So we're focused on kind of two things I'm very passionate about and have been for many years. And by, by virtue of the fact you can't see me, you can't see my gray beard, but that's proof I've been doing this for a long time. But we're focused on modernization and we're also focused on security. And those two things, in, in my view, kind of go hand in hand. So that's an area where we spend a lot of time thinking about this. And from an election perspective, you know, I think one of the things that most people focus on when they focus on election security is they focus on kind of voting devices and, and people voting. And as everyone on this call knows, there's a whole lot of infrastructure around that people don't necessarily think about. So we're very passionate about making sure that we're helping our our partners protect the election, election integrity from the holistic sense, from kind of the enterprise sense. And then the other piece of it is I'm kind of a little bit of a civics nerd, so I pay attention to these kinds of things, and I care deeply about our elections as a, as a citizen. Well, there's nothing wrong with being a civics nerd. I think we should all be a little bit more like that. <laughs> so thank you, Sean. Um, and actually, thank you to all of our guests uh, for those great overviews and insights about what they do and what their organizations do. During the show today, I want to talk about some of the kinds of threats and challenges that were overcome leading up to the 2020 election, the lessons learned for future elections as well. But, but first, I think I should probably point out that it seems like the election went very smoothly, Despite a lot of valid concerns before the election that we talked about in our previous shows, there didn't seem to be any major security breaches and no major problems outside of the typical things associated with hosting what is essentially a very large nationwide event. So I'd like to start with a couple questions for the four of our guests who are coming to us from previous shows to see how closely reality was compared with some of their predictions. Mr. Bernardino, let's start with you on this one. During a previous uh, show, you mentioned that you had been involved in election security since the punch card days. So you have seen a lot of threats to our elections evolve over time. How does the 2020 election compare with previous elections that you have been involved with in terms of the security threats and disruptions? It almost seemed like nationwide 2020 went more smoothly than in 2016. What was your experience this year in Orange County, California? The elections of 2016, I mean, they ran smoothly. However, 2020 was exceptional in that it went smoothly under so many new challenges and circumstances, and some of which we had no history to draw upon. Uh, there was operating the election under COVID. There was the largest turnout in history, at least in Orange County. We had over 1.5 million ballots. The scrutiny was unprecedented. With all those factors, it was almost surprisingly smooth. And that also translated for security threats and dis disruptions. Um, I believe the preparation, lessons learned, but especially the partnerships that were developed since 2016 helped tremendously. So, you know, I think that was a big difference. Again, it, it's comparing a little bit of apples and oranges just because 2020 had so much more complexity to it. But mm -hmm. You know, 2016 didn't have the um, critical infrastructure label um, that we've had and been able to utilize since 2017, and that really, I think, was a, one of the largest factors in, in having a smooth election cycle security-wise. 
Excellent. Well, thank you. Paul, during a previous show, you joked that no matter who won or what happened in Okaloosa County, that you were sure that you were going to get sued. <laughs> I know that you were joking, but of course, the reason it was so funny was because people take elections so very seriously. So now that it's over, uh, I can ask you, how did things go overall in Okaloosa County, and how were things compared with uh, previous elections there? Well, certainly um, there were a lot less lawsuits uh, this time than there were in 2016 and certainly in 2018. Um, I don't know whether it just means that the lawyers were tired of earning money or that there were too many other considerations on the table. But there were a whole lot less lawsuits. But, of course, uh, this year Florida delivered a performance that sheds us of the mantle of carrying that we've been carrying around since 2000. And all of that has to do with the preparations and all of the flexibility that we were given, our governor, the executive orders out of, out of the executive branch here, the money from the EAC, all of those things made it, had a tremendous impact on our ability to deliver uh, safe and secure elections. And everything went very, very smoothly, um, so much so that, you know, it, it was, like I said, on election day, it was really eerie because, you know, I'm going to say almost 60% of my population had voted before election day. And my poll workers were, they were busy, but they were nowhere near as busy as they normally are during an election day. And then, of course, uh, we didn't have any recounts to speak of in Florida, uh, certainly not on a statewide level like we had three in 2018. Um, and so all of those things really, really reduced the number of, of potential lawsuits uh, we still got buried under a flood of public records requests, of course, but, you know, so many of us uh, in this sector end up with that anyway. So overall on the balance sheet for all of the adversity, uh, a lot of the things Justin mentioned, uh, you know, problems finding poll workers, uh, problems finding polling places in some of our jurisdictions here in Florida, everything went uh, amazingly well given the, uh, you know, constantly changing landscape we were operating under for all three of our elections last year. Excellent. Well, thank you, Paul. And it's good to hear. Mr. Herring, prior to the election, you were really putting a lot of work into making sure that New York did not have its election disrupted, either by things like cybersecurity threats or elements like outside disinformation campaigns. With the 2020 election now a part of history, can you tell us how everything went overall in New York? And were you pleased with the way the election process worked for you in New York during 2020? Um, sure. So, you know, like Justin and Paul, um, I think the, the short answer is, you know, we are happy about how the election went in New York. I think overall, there are certainly challenges. And those challenges range from the pandemic to actually changes in the way, um, you know, changes in the way that New York voting handles and the introduction of, of an early voting period that happened before the pandemic. But this is the first presidential election where we had that. So there were a variety of challenges from logistics to the pandemic and, of course, the cybersecurity element. Um, but ultimately, we do think we achieved our goal of having a safe and fair election um, that gave New Yorkers confidence in the integrity of the process and the result. I think that, you know, as far as the cybersecurity challenges go, you know, I think it's it's the nature of a field like cybersecurity, right? That, uh, that no news is the best news. <laughs> um, and, and success ends up looking fairly quiet. Uh, we did face one significant cybersecurity incident during the, the early voting period. But I think a lot of our preparation and planning and pre-election coordination that we had done really facilitated us in handling that in a way that ultimately did not disrupt the election. So like I said, it was certainly an election with lots of challenges, but we are pleased with how it went. Thank you, Mr. Herring. 
then the Election Assistance Commission was responsible for helping out elections officials as well as state and local governments across the country in 2020 in an effort to keep their elections safe, accurate, and secure, also accessible. Uh, were you able to help everyone who needed it for the recent election? It sounds like from our elections officials, this was a, a, a crazy year in terms of a lot of challenges. So how big of an effort was that in 2020? And again, were you able to help everyone who reached out to you? Yeah, well, we certainly tried. Uh, you know, we're a small agency with a big mission, and I'm extremely proud of the work that we did this year and and our team for all of the effort. Uh, you know, the decentralized nature of elections uh, in the United States makes the federal role more of a support role in helping bring people together, providing the support uh, that we can to election officials who are doing the hard work. And so a few things stand out for me this year uh, that were particularly important. First, uh, I mentioned the $825 million we distributed from Congress. Uh, that was a big deal. We were able to get it out pretty quickly. Uh, the last 400 was the CARES Act. Congress gave us 30 days to do that, uh, and we were able to meet that deadline, so that was important. Uh, additionally, a few people have mentioned critical infrastructure and, and the critical infrastructure designation and the governance structure that came out of that. We were able to participate in a joint COVID working group uh, that provided a number of valuable resources for state and local election officials as they we're looking to, uh, you know, increase their amount of mail and absentee voting uh, as they were looking to make polling places as safe as possible. So, again, we're happy to participate in that. Uh, we also worked with the Center for Tech and Civic Life to make a series of tailored cybersecurity trainings available to election officials across uh, the country at no cost to them. And finally, one thing I was particularly pleased uh, with the success of was our National Poll Worker Recruitment Day effort. Uh, I believe this really made a difference in raising awareness about the need for poll workers. And ultimately, we saw a new generation of Americans step up and serve this year. Great. Sounds really good, Ben. Thank you. It's excellent to hear from all of you about how everything went well overall in 2020. I want to talk about some of the specific threats that were overcome and ultimately dealt with by all of our guests today. But first, I wanted to maybe hear from each of you what you think was the greatest challenge during the 2020 election. And Jeff, as one of our new panelists, let's start with you on this one. What were some of the challenges that you and CISA faced this election cycle, and how were these addressed? And if you can, how are these challenges different from previous elections? Thank you. That's a great question. I mean, there were certainly expected challenges of malicious cyber activity. We've made a big effort on ransomware. Uh, we saw nation-state activity, like the uh, voter data used by Iranian cyber actors to, to undermine the perceived integrity of the election. There was other disinformation and misinformation. Uh, we worked to, to help mitigate those through, again, providing cybersecurity services, guidance, uh, outreach to more than uh, 7,000 counties and jurisdictions, a lot of joint products with the FBI, with the EAC. But the biggest challenge is, I mean, the elephant in the room is the response to coronavirus and how that drew, that change uh, drew down on election officials' most valuable resource, that being time. I actually think Commissioner Hovland's being modest. Uh, he wasn't, didn't participate in a work. He chaired a joint working group uh, that together we were able to uh, do things like convene the CDC and the Postal Service to really allow election officials to ask direct questions of these, to understand what changes they may need to manage the risk of the virus for their staff and for the public. And we were able to produce guidance documents to help inform the decision-making that they were uh, 
they were going through at the time, uh, either to expand early voting, take safeguards for in-person voting, or to move to expanded absentee voting by mail. So we were very pleased with the outcome, seeing an election season with few events, but obviously there was a lot of work to help support election officials and the, and the vendor community. Great. Thank you, Jeff. And Lewis, welcome to you to the panel for the very first time. Uh, I know you've only been with the Center for Internet Security's election infrastructure since September, which must have been a great time to get up to speed with a new job. But you have almost a 30-year history with cybersecurity through the Secret Service. In terms of the election, what did you see as the biggest challenge, uh, some of the biggest challenges, and, and were you able to help overcome them? Thanks again, John. Uh, I think the biggest challenge was improving cybersecurity for the election officers. Again, after 2016, I mean, a lot of focus on improving the cybersecurity of elections across the country. So I think if we look over the last four years where we were at and where we are today, that uh, significant progress has been made in that regard. In many states, uh, have been helping their local election offices to assess and improve their cybersecurity. And our role in the EII SAC, and we're helping them meet that challenge of uh, addressing these cybersecurity gaps that they have. And we've um, deployed extensively our Albert network of monitoring sensors to election official offices. We've also made a lot of headway in getting our endpoint detection service out to election officials. And, and John, as you mentioned in the lead up to the question, you know, coming on board at the end of September, it was a very intense OJT over those four or five weeks. But I can say that one thing that I observed in the weeks leading up to the election was the partnerships and how key they were. These partnerships, again, between the election officials, their staff, you know, we had Mr. Hovland and Mr. Hale from SIS on board, how important that partnership with their organizations were and how important the partnership with the ISAC is. I mean, those partnerships were key and overcoming the many challenges to secure the election. It's you know one thing to, to put these tools and things in place, but if you don't have the strong partnerships as well to get that done across the board, it certainly makes that difficult. And I take that away or take that as one of the key takeaways uh, in that short period of time was those uh, partnerships and how key they were and how important they're going to be going forward. Excellent. Thank you. Mr. Herring, New York faced a lot of threats and disruptions this year. Uh, you kind of mentioned one in your previous answer to your question. But for example, one of your counties was hit with a ransomware attack that actually knocked the voter registration page offline for a little while. I want to ask you how you overcame specifically that particular setback, but also were there any other unexpected challenges that your state faced this year during the election or the run-up to the election? Sure, John. Um, you know, obviously you say unexpected challenges in 2020. The first thing that jumps to mind is the pandemic. And I know some of my, my co-panelists have already talked about those challenges. Um, but I'll just take a moment to focus on cybersecurity, especially since you asked about the ransomware attack. We did have a ransomware attack in Chenango County during the um, early voting period that started in late October. Uh, we had no reason to think that it was election related or that the attackers cared about the election, but it did disrupt the county government, including some of the systems that were supporting the elections. And around the same time, two other healthcare entities in the state that were supported by the state were also hit by ransomware attacks. Those entities had nothing to do with the election, but in combination, those did put a strain on New York State's incident response resources. That said, I think that a lot of the preparation that we'd done and a lot of the coordination that we'd done and the partnerships that we'd built, to echo Lewis's point about the importance of the partnerships, put us in a position to address those challenges. And in particular, in Chenango County, you know, we, we have, we're fortunate in New York, we've built a paper ballot backup trail system. Um, the polling places remained open. The voters were able to vote and the votes were counted. 
Um, and ultimately, I think it was success as far as our incident response and our election continuity procedures. The website was knocked off, and, and I think it was actually not the voter registration page, but the, the absentee ballot request page was knocked offline for, I think it was a few days. But, you know, everyone, every New York voter was mailed, also mailed an application as well. Um, and many people had a, were in a position to request those ballots beforehand. So we're confident that everyone that wanted to vote was was able to do so. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. Paul, during the previous show, you mentioned that some of the voter information in your state had been hacked, although it did not specifically affect Okaloosa County. And most of the information obtained by the hack is actually publicly available in Florida anyway. So the hackers probably could have just called and asked for it. But did that end up being the biggest problem for you, kind of protecting that voter identity? Or were there other things that ultimately gave you more trouble? And how were you able to overcome those challenges there in Florida? Certainly, uh, there was a big headline from the general election time frame specifically about the misuse of public voter information, and we anticipate there will be some uh, some moves to address this legislatively this session um, in Tallahassee, but if you didn't hear the story, somebody actually took the publicly available information on our governor and moved him from his current jurisdiction where he voted into another jurisdiction. And, you know, something that we've been kind of trying to warn people about for a long time. So certainly that is going to come to a head, although uh, we do not see a whole lot of panic about those instances, um, more so than people were worried about, uh, as everybody certainly knows by now, all of the things that COVID brought to us. So in addition to having to find ways to make sure we were doing what we could to protect the public when they came to vote, doing what we could to protect our poll workers. I was fortunate to not lose a lot of polling places, but I know many of my counterparts across Florida lost quite a number of polling places because they used to use like, you know, day rooms and stuff like that in nursing homes and being ejected from all of those places made things a little tight for a lot of people. Poll worker recruitment was a big deal. Our governor actually issued an order offering any state employee two full days of pay, plus whatever poll worker pay we were paying uh, to get them to be poll workers. And I know a lot of people were able to take advantage of that. I did not have as many state employees as I would have liked volunteer, but thankfully my sheriff's office, my uh, board of county commissioners, my clerk of circuit court, Uh, All three of those folks sent a lot of their employees my way to bolster our poll worker numbers um, and help us get through both the August primary and the November general election, which was probably one of our biggest challenges. And I know we're going to talk about it later, but of course, COVID uh, hit my office at one of the absolute worst times. Um, And I know I'll, I'll talk more about that when we get a little further down. Suffice it to say that most of the challenges were COVID-related uh, in, you know, going all the way back to our March presidential preference primary when things were just starting to lock down, scrambling to find, you know, any sort of hand sanitizer uh, or other things. Um, and then, of course, all of the preparation uh, with all of the CARES Act money, federal grants and state grants, uh, and all of our all of our partners at the state and federal level to just really help us pull it all together and, you know, make sure that we were aware of what resources were there to help us uh, made things uh, work as well as they did. Excellent. Uh, Thank you, Paul. Mr. Bernardino, now that the election is over, you can add it to your vast experience in election security. 
In Orange County this year, what ended up being the biggest challenge for you in terms of the election or election security, and how was it overcome there in Orange County? I think the, the biggest challenge is actually the human part of election security. You know, we were lucky in that we had support and resources to address the technical security end of things, but the human endeavor was definitely a challenge because, you know, we have our employees, you have vote center workers in the field, they're seasonal, and they have to be prepared to deal with security issues. But in addition to that, they had to be ready to deal with extra scrutiny coming from observers. They had to be ready to deal with difficult situations. There was a lot of people creating challenges in the field. And, you know, we had a good response structure in place where people from our office will go and deal with it. But making sure that people were obviously observing security but able to deal with those extra situations caused by all the observation and scrutiny. So, you know, they also had to know that there's an increase in people looking to expose or misinterpret every little thing that is happening, and, and they had to be prepared with that. And the way that we dealt with it and prepared with it is increased and constant training, tabletop exercises, run-throughs, but every meeting, every training, security had to be an integral part of that, and it just we had to weave it into every part of our training, every meeting, every conversation that we had with everybody involved in the election. Mm -hmm. A lot of preparation. Sounds like it paid off for you. <laughs> ben, as we mentioned before, and as some of our guests have mentioned, the Election Assistance Commission is responsible for supporting election officials across the entire country. Just curious, now that the election is over, do you follow up with them afterwards to see how everything went? Of everyone that you had contact with during the election, um, did they talk to you about what was the chief problem or threat that they ended up dealing with? And did you make sure that uh, everything that you did helped them to uh, run a smooth election? Yeah, thanks for that, John. You know, after every election at the EAC, we conduct the election administration and voting survey uh, that I mentioned, and that really gives us, uh, you know, facts and data about how the election was run in every state and territory around the country. Uh, additionally, uh, you know, this year we're we're in the process of following up with lessons learned efforts. Uh, we're going to ultimately put out a report on the 2020 election, uh, you know, which will hopefully take a lot of these lessons learned, you know, take the things that worked, take some of the things that didn't, you know, and put that out there. There were so many resources created this year uh, that we want to try to capture as part of our clearinghouse function. But as far as the chief problem this year, you know, I think a couple things. Number one, you've got sort of a pre and post November 3rd components. Uh, you know, before November 3rd, there were issues with resources. Uh, most election officials were facing the challenge of running both the largest sort of mail and absentee election they'd ever run, but also needing to maintain polling places, uh, including having enough poll workers, as we've talked about a little bit already, uh, but also making sure that those polling places were as safe as possible. So, you know, a number of challenges this year, and you've really got to give credit to the state and local election officials for doing that job. And then throughout the year, both uh, in the lead up to the election and then obviously afterward, there's been, you know, this pervasive issue uh, around mis and disinformation. And so certainly, uh, you know, that's an ongoing challenge and something uh, that we need to continue to work on and get better at.
Excellent. And we'll definitely be talking about disinformation in just a bit. Sean, I'd like you to put your civics nerd hat on for just a moment for us. What did you see as the greatest threat to the election in 2020? And why do you think that we were able to overcome it? So, yeah, I feel like I'm just going to be piling on to everyone else's great responses. But I think that, yeah, we got to celebrate what was done right. I think things like instantiating CISA as an organization to help the state agencies was critical. I think them designating election infrastructure as critical infrastructure was also kind of the first step or the second step of making sure that the correct spotlight was shown on on the problem or the protection that needed to happen. I think that there was, you know, from talking to our uh, state and local customers who are kind of moving to innovate their security models, there was an unprecedented amount of collaboration. So someone talked about partnerships and, and information sharing and best practice sharing and all of those different things. So I think those were all great steps, great things that helped give kind of uh, a lot of trust in the election of last year. I think the important thing also to think about is that you know, cybersecurity is, is a vigilance game. It's something that is not one and done. You don't just do it and then move on. It's something you got to build into your lifestyle. You got to build into your security architecture. And, and it's a challenge for elections because elections happen every so often, every two years, every four years, every period of time. And it's not happening kind of ongoing. Like when we live our life inside of a business, you know, we're protecting customer data and we're protecting employee data all the time consistently. So it's a little tougher to apply that mindset in the election security model, but we still need to do that. Vigilance is key. I think if I look at kind of one of the biggest threats, the biggest threats, you know, to me were external threats. And I think everyone kind of touched on these, right? COVID was an unknown external threat um, across the board with regards to getting people to the polling places and, and changing the way people voted, early voting versus, you know, same day voting. And I think we really have a, a substantial disinformation problem in the United States right now that we have to address. Excellent. And thank you for setting that up. I, I want to go into the disinformation part of the webinar discussion today. During all three of the previous election security webinars, the ones that we did before the election, the discussion of disinformation campaigns, like the kind that are launched through social media channels, it was a huge concern for all of our guests. I don't think there was one guest from the previous three shows that didn't think that disinformation was going to be a big problem. It's not a direct security threat, as Sean, you mentioned, but the consensus was that it's a dangerous problem for running a safe election. It's just something that we really need to get a grip on. Paul, I believe that you were one of our former guests who were actually very concerned about this. You had even set up a um, counter disinformation squad, you kind of described it as, in your county to talk about election security and counter any wild claims that were made on social media about the integrity of the election. Did you have to tap into that group? And in the end, how much of a threat was disruption and disinformation campaigns this year for you? We did not see uh, a lot of it here in Florida, or at least not in my part of Florida. We were tapped into, like you mentioned, you know, um, I, I had sort of inoculated uh, a lot of the social groups that I spoke to heading into the election cycle about, you know, what things like, you know, website defacement meant and, you know, how, you know, that doesn't change the election results just because my website gets defaced. And, you know, just basically inoculating some of the movers and shakers of the community to be the ones who I could call on to defend our process should there have been any type of incident uh, which thankfully never came. Of course, all of our all of our partners with the ISACs, both MSISAC and EIISAC, all of the bulletins and the warnings and the briefings, all of that was vitally instrumental in making sure everything stayed safe. The Albert sensors, all of the joint election security initiative that we did here in Florida, all of that stuff was terribly important. 
Uh, we didn't see a lot of mis- or disinformation every once in a while, but we even got signed up with Squint so that we could report anything that, that we ran across and to get reports from Squint about things that were being reported to them that might affect our jurisdiction, and that was a huge help um, at the very least just to know that we were prepared and that we were getting, again, you know, good intel as quick as it could come out. Uh, and all of those things made it very, very much smoother and safer and, uh, you know, really improved the public confidence at a time when, when, when the public confidence was starting to look a little shaky. Uh, of course, the national narrative about voting by mail, people trying to walk that back, that led to a whole bunch of, uh, of, of inquiries and claims. Uh, any time one little hiccup happened, somebody's ballot got missent to a neighbor's house, et cetera, it was a big conspiracy theory. And so we had to had to kind of keep a lid on that and, you know, try and get out as much correct information as we could through all of the platforms that we had at our disposal. But at the end of the day, the number of people who, who had genuine problems, uh, the number of people who uh, were actually trying to commit voter fraud are in such a small minority that it basically became not newsworthy. Excellent. Well, that's very good to hear. Mr. Bernardino, what was your experience with election disinformation campaigns this year through social media and other channels, and how were you able to counter them? So I'll start with we, I mean, our phone lines were blown up with, you know, people calling because of misinformation out there. People who were maybe misinformed but were asking questions in good faith, we were able to counter them. To the extent that we're able to allow people to vote, we were we were successful with that. We received a lot of positive feedback from voters who checked their ballot or signed up for ballot tracking alerts, and that made them feel real comfortable. Also, Neil Kelly, our registrar, you know, he was referred to recently in the in the paper as a voice of competence and information about election integrity in a highly volatile year. Countering them is is hugely difficult, but we provide as much transparency as possible while trying to keep everybody safe. Ironically, I think forcing us to think of election observation differently under COVID probably provided the most transparency we've ever had because we had to start using technology uh, to accommodate, you know, social distancing and so forth. So like WebEx, that allowed anybody anywhere at any time to observe any part of the ballot counting and have a closer look at the ballots, because now we're we're focusing cameras on them to go through WebEx. So it was kind of ironic in that sense, and and you know maybe we'll continue doing that even after COVID. But mm -hmm. um, I think that you know there's these cases where it doesn't matter what the truth is, you're, you're still going to have some people who don't who don't accept it. The fact that the elections were secure and accurate uh, is provable. You know, that's a provable fact. So we, you know, with everything, our successes I, I mentioned before, and I think also we take the long view that the truth about the security and accuracy of the election becomes more and more evident as time goes on. Excellent. And thank you for mentioning some of those things that were put in place to kind of counter that and to make people feel better. I know in Maryland, I, I signed up for uh, mail voting and I would get the email alerts, you know, your your ballot has been accepted, your ballot has been looked at and all that. And it did make me feel a whole lot better. So that's kind of a neat, a neat thing. Mr. Herring, New York, like many large and prosperous states, always seems to be targeted by these disinformation campaigns. How did you work to counter them this year? 
so, you know, like my colleagues in other states, before we even got to the disinformation challenge, we also had a large information and education challenge because so much about this election was different than past elections. And there were new and understandable anxieties about voting during a pandemic. Um, as mentioned earlier, we had we had a universal absentee balloting option. We had and an early voting period for the first time in a general election. So setting aside the concern about disinformation, we had to make sure people were aware of both the options, how to vote early or how to get an absentee ballot and vote by mail um, and be comfortable doing that uh, during a pandemic. There was a big information, a big logistical and a big educational campaign centered around helping voters to understand all the new and different ways of voting and getting folks comfortable about how we were going to push forward with the election during the pandemic. That was largely a success. Overall turnout during the election was up. Uh, and it may have had the benefit, too, of actually sort of laying the groundwork for defeating disinformation. One of the things that we emphasized was something I've heard called filling the void, making sure that people have accurate information from official sources that they know how to get to and that it's available for them. Now, that's complicated, of course, because like, like in other places, elections are locally controlled. So you have 62 different counties and different counties have different websites, different social media accounts, different ways of communicating. But I think, by and large, collectively across the state, we were able to make sure that people had accurate information, um, that they could find information from official sources. And I think that certainly contributed to what we saw, which is what we saw was that we did not see any significant disinformation campaigns that really disrupted the voting in New York, which is not to say that we didn't see any disinformation. We certainly did see some. Uh, but by and large, I don't think it was as consequential as we had feared it might be. Um, I'd like to think that part of the reason it wasn't as consequential is because, you know, we in New York and our partners in other states and in the federal government in the places like elections ISAC were did so much to prepare to combat it. We did have some incidents. For instance, we saw someone set up a fake New York State Twitter account, you know, even use the, the New York State seal on it. Um, and we had we prepared for that by opening a line of communication, talking to the social media companies beforehand. And so we were able to report that to Twitter and get it taken down in pretty short order once we learned of it. So um, I think that, you know, a combination of good luck of probably a lot of hard work done in a lot of different places at different levels of the government um, and a lot of preparation helped us to get through this without without anything like the, the worst case scenarios we'd feared before the election. Excellent. Well, thank you. That's very good to hear. Then the Election Assistance Commission, does it provide any help in this area for local election officials that are concerned about disinformation campaigns? You know, we worked on this in a number of ways. You know, one of the ones that that I think, you know, was a particularly important effort this year that I was proud that we participated in uh, was supporting the, the National Association of Secretaries of State driven Trusted Info 2020 campaign, which was really about educating the public about the need to go, uh, you know, to their state and local election officials as the trusted source of election information. You know, that was a big deal. I used to work at the Missouri Secretary of State's office, and, and I've told the story that this was back in 2008, 2009, and we would get calls, you know, yelling at us about Hillary Clinton because she was Secretary of State of the Nation. And, and so, uh, you know, a lot of the times Americans don't know where to get that trusted source information. So I think efforts like that, driving people to their state and locals, uh, you know, recognizing that election processes and procedures vary across state lines, you know, for those of us that are in the the greater Washington, D.C. area, uh, you know, obviously you have different rules in, you know, in D.C., in Virginia, in Maryland, uh, in, you know, West Virginia gets hit in the TV market. And so, you know, having people go to their election official is a big part. And so anyway, 
that we could amplify those trusted sources. Uh, we tried to. Uh, additionally, the EVE survey I mentioned earlier, this was a big part of, you know, some of the efforts that we had in pushing back on disinformation or, or assisting media with fact-checking efforts, uh, you know, again, having those statistics. One example that jumps to mind, uh, you know, Paul brought up some of the information out there around vote by mail, you know, for a lot of people or absentee balloting. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people uh, were treating this like it was something totally new. And we knew from Eve's data that in 2016, nearly a quarter of Americans had voted that way. And, and so being able to communicate that, highlight that, you know, this was something that has existed for a long time, that there are these practices and procedures in place, uh, you know, all over the place, I think was important. But as I look at this issue, I think there is a lot more we can do. Some of that's resource dependent at the EAC, but we need, you know, first and foremost in my mind is probably standing up a bit more of a one-stop shop website, uh, you know, to get people to their trusted source information, get them the basic information, but get them to their state and local election officials uh, to get that accurate information about elections. Excellent. Thank you, Ben. Jeff, can you tell us a little bit about CISA's efforts to counter mis- and disinformation campaigns during this election? Thank you. Happy to. Kind of as a, a federal government, we, we're thinking of it almost as a supply and demand challenge. Um, we have partners in the intelligence community, partners in law enforcement, the FBI in particular, that focus on that supply side. They're there taking down the bad guy, the fake accounts by foreign actors. This election cycle, we really tried to work, as many of the other panelists have said, we tried to work on the other side of the ledger, the, the demand side, the really that interaction point between the American public and disinformation. We were part of the, the NAS effort at Trusted Voices and partnered with several organizations to try to kind of both broaden awareness of the threat of disinformation and educate on the tactics of disinformation. But as the election approached, we kind of understood that we'd, we'd have to get into a little element of counter-messaging. We knew from previous election cycles like some likely areas for disinformation. So we took steps to pre-bunk uh, as opposed to debunk uh, that disinfo. And we did that and posted it on our rumor control site, uh, where we tried to provide clear, concise, kind of sourced responses to address some of the disinformation this cycle. We were then able to partner with some of the social media firms to make them aware of this as a resource for what we were seeing targeting election infrastructure, rumors specifically about the infrastructure and the administration of voting in that manner, and to help serve as a resource for for voters and anyone of interest to, to understand the safeguards that may be in place that actually did have the evidence that showed that this was a secure election. Obviously, this was only scratching the surface of addressing the emerging risk of disinformation. We're looking for new ways to go forward, but considering where we were in 2016 to, to 2020, uh, this has been a fascinating growth. Well, thank you, Jeff. Lewis, how much of a threat uh, is disinformation or was disinformation? And do you expect it will be a problem for future elections as well? Well, one thing I've learned since joining CIS is that um, perception is everything in elections. And I think disinformation is a significant threat to what we can expect in the future. Certainly, it's going to be a concern. And I support uh, the response of others on the panel. I, I think the most important tool against this information is that continued communication with the public from the state, local election officials on their processes. As Mr. Hoblin and others mentioned, um, you know, those awareness campaigns, educating the public on the processes. Another piece of it, 
is maintaining official sites, your official websites, you know, as the verified information source on those processes. And, and as Mr. Hale mentioned, you know, working with others and having that response in real time to, you know, counter that disinformation that's out there, given, you know, the facts versus that, uh, you know, the fiction that's being put out there and, and doing that via the various forms, uh, the platforms that are out there, be it, you know, social media platforms that are available through the press, um, whether it's written or uh, the TV, radio spots, you know, whatever we need to do to, to get that out there. And again, working together as partners to combat this in future elections. Makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Lewis. Sean, how frustrating is it to deal with disinformation campaigns when they exist outside of the direct control of your cybersecurity teams? How do you advise your customers to prepare to deal with them? So I think the main thing is to focus on what matters. And I mentioned earlier that cybersecurity is a vigilance game. So it's all about keeping focus, maintaining focus on building out your cybersecurity program, um, making sure you're adopting kind of the, what I would consider based upon, you know, your offering based upon your DNA. Security is going to become part of your DNA. And there are different ways that you can kind of do that. I think for me, it, it's about keeping things simple, keeping things right in front of you and offering those protections. I mean, disinformation has been around forever. We're living in the internet age, so of course the internet is a megaphone for disinformation, but it's been existing as long as we've been human beings, right? I mean, it's, it's one of those things that you just kind of have to keep in the back of your mind, and you have to keep tabs on it, as people have mentioned here. Some disinformation is people just defacing websites, some of it's coordinated because guess what? Attackers are just like, you know, just like us. They're people. You're going to have to think about the way they think of things. Sometimes disinformation is coordinated with attacks, and we have to be able to discern one from the other. But as long as we adopt kind of a security mindset from day one, bake cybersecurity into our DNA every time we put out a new application, every time we put out something where a user needs to access something, we have this holistic approach to security where it's built in, where it's adaptive. And it can then be used to kind of counter any of the threats that someone might use on the attacker side while we're kind of keeping an eye on the disinformation side. Makes a lot of sense, Sean. Thank you. In addition to being a very contentious election season, 2020 was also unique because we had the COVID-19 pandemic to deal with, something some of our guests have already mentioned a few times. This forced a lot of jurisdictions to really increase remote voting and also to secure local sites, not just in terms of security, but also in terms of safety, putting distance between people, cleaning, cleaning the machines and things like that. Um, so, Paul, I have to start with you on this one. You are famous uh, for being quoted in the New York, New York Times and several other papers. You were the Florida election official who came down with COVID during the election. How much of a burden was COVID to you and your staff? And what did you do to keep your voters safe to make sure that they didn't uh, contract COVID like you did, unfortunately? That was actually one of the, I mean, I, I hate to say interesting things that happened during the election because I was diagnosed along with several of my staff the week early voting started. I had to be out. My symptoms were backed up a few days into the week before, but I had to miss basically that whole first week of early voting working from home and that sort of put the New York Times on my on my trail. And uh, in an interview with them, uh, the 28 October quote of the day was my very snarky comment uh, that all we were missing was the asteroid landing with the flesh-eating zombies and our year would be complete. And so it certainly was problematic in that some of my other staff who were also tested and also went out around that same time uh, at a very critical time as we were hitting the last few days 
of our ability to take absentee ballot requests and to mail those ballots out, which made other staff members. We basically lost our entire vote-by-mail team. Uh, we lost the people who backed up the vote-by-mail team. All of them were gone, all within the space of about three or four days. And so, uh, thankfully, my case was very mild. Several of my staff were actually asymptomatic, although positive, so we were just counting down the 10 days to come back. So I had almost all of my team reassembled by the Saturday before the election. I had the other staff were able to step in uh, using a lot of remote access from those of us who were working from home and, uh, you know, being able to direct them to get the job done with getting those last few days of vote-by-mail ballots out on time without missing any deadlines. Um, And then, you know, it was just the crush of trying to get everything done because we had to cancel about a week's worth of canvassing boards. So we were hoping to stay ahead of the flood of returning vote-by-mail ballots. So that kind of put us behind the curve on that as well. Uh, And then all at the same time, as you mentioned, right, so now what are you you doing to keep your voters safe, too? Because when the voters hear that your office has been closed, you know, how am I supposed to pick up an absentee ballot, drop off an absentee ballot? We had to create kiosks outside of our office to serve the walk-in public who had a legitimate need to come in and get a ballot. Of course, we already had drop boxes. Uh, in place. We we figured out a way to socially distance our canvassing boards and get that working. And then at the end of the day, we had, uh, you know, all of the recommending that people wear masks in a jurisdiction that did not have a mask ordinance. So there was no requirement for it, but we highly recommended everybody wear masks. Our poll workers were provided with all the PPE that we could find, face masks, face shields, the big plexiglass things over the voter check-in stations, any any place that a poll worker would interact with a voter face-to-face, uh, we, had a, we had a big plexiglass shield there, which, of course, creates logistical delivery problems and all of that. And then just hand sanitizer and disinfectant wipes uh, and extra poll workers to do those things to go around behind voters. We we used disposable secrecy sleeves instead of reusable ones, so it was once we gave it to you, the voter, we don't want it back. We don't want to touch it. You either throw it in that trash can over there for recycling or take it with you when you leave. We did a lot of those things just to reduce all of the exposure, and I'm happy to report that you know we did not see any spike, certainly in my jurisdiction, uh, and for the most part across Florida, we did not really see a large spike in COVID cases in the immediate weeks following the election, uh, which is just a good metric to know that, that we were on the right track for doing everything we possibly could to keep all of those folks safe. Makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Paul. And we're really glad to hear that you've recovered fully from your ordeal as well. Mr. Bernardino, Orange County is a very large municipality. And of course, that means that you are dealing and were dealing with COVID-19 related problems. How did that affect your election? Everything. So everything you do now with the election takes more energy, effort, and planning. For example, we had to locate larger vote centers to accommodate physical distancing. Uh, We had to recruit more employees to work those sites as they're wiping down the equipment. It was also, you know, information recruiting workers and making sure that they feel comfortable, that they know they were safe. You know, like I mentioned earlier, increasing our footprint for observation, coming up with new and creative ways to allow people to observe every bit of the process while maintaining safety. So everything that we had to do, everything we knew about running elections, we had to kind of throw some of that out the window and just reconsider it due to COVID. So it was a lot of extra energy for every single process. 
<laughs> Makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you. I'm glad that it worked out okay for you. Mr. Herring, New York was hit early during the pandemic, uh, which made your primary election very challenging. I know in New York, we were watching that across the country, how things were going there. How did COVID-19 affect the general election in your state and how did you deal with that? I mean, yeah, I think that the short answer to echo um, Justin is, is it affected everything. It was a big change. Well, you mentioned like, and as we talked about uh, when we were here, we were all here together in July, um, New York had to postpone its primary. Primary was scheduled to fall in April. And as some of you may remember, that was really the throes of the, the pandemic, which was hitting New York extremely hard at that time. So it was postponed to June. It did ultimately, I think, in a lot of ways, help. We carried that out, the primary election out. We did a lot of the things that we ultimately did for the general election, including you know, universal absentee balloting, um, an early voting period. Some of the cybersecurity planning and measures that we put in place for the primary uh, were mostly the same ones we used for the general election. And that experience, I think, helped us a lot um, when the general election came around. You know, we did have, I think I mentioned earlier, the pretty extraordinary logistical undertaking that took place in order to in order to create an absentee balloting option for all more than 10 million New York voters, you know, create an early voting option with polling places and poll workers that were open for 10 days. Nothing like that had ever been done for a New York general election. Um, and we did get millions of New Yorkers, almost half of all New York voters voted either early or absentee. And one of the payoffs for that was that on actual election day, even though turnout was up overall for the election, only about half as many people voted on the actual election day. Um, and given all the work that had gone into prepare for an election where we were going to need to be able to have millions of people voting in, in a safe and socially distanced way, the fact that you know we were able to get more about half of New Yorkers were able to vote before election day or by mail really helped us a lot, I think. And, and we were able to get through the election. Um, we actually had fewer problems than in the past with things like, you know, long lines um, at election centers, notwithstanding the need for social distancing. And so there was certainly a tremendous amount of upfront work that went into making the election during the pandemic possible. Um, I think ultimately it did pay off. We had a smooth election day and we were able to get the election done in a way that was that was safe and fair. And, and also I think inspired New Yorkers confidence that the election was safe and fair. Excellent, that's very good to hear. Jeff, I bet in your many years working with CISA, you never thought that a threat to election security might actually be biological. I realize it's not really a cyber problem, but how did CISA adapt its work through the pandemic? And what were some of the lessons you learned from this process? It certainly wasn't in the playbook. I thought uh, Mr. Herring was, uh, made a good point about the timing of when we all shut down. It was right there early on uh, in the primaries. At the point of that interruption, election officials were reaching out of urgently needing more information to make decisions about their election processes, both how to continue to run their primaries and what they were going to do for the general. I mean, we've been in, under these conditions for so long now that uh, with so much more information than we had at the time, uh, we were getting questions of how did the virus spread? What densities would be concerning? Would it survive on paper? Uh, would it survive on writing utensils? What cleaning methods worked to kill the virus? Commissioner Hovland uh, and, and CISA uh, lead this uh, government coordinating council for the election infrastructure sector. As part of that, we were able to ask our federal partners like the CDC uh, and the Postal Service to hold these meetings. The first one was uh, March 25th to start having conversations and let uh, election officials identify the gaps of information that they needed addressed to make their decisions. It quickly became clear that election officials were going to modify their election processes to make it safer from the virus, both for their voters and for their staff, whether going to early voting, absentee by mail, 
are putting in safeguards for kind of in-person voting on election day, we understood there was a need to produce guidance documents on all of these things, like voter education about the administrative changes, steps you can take for in-person voting, steps you can take for mail-in voting, and the importance of like accurate voter data in making these changes. So we partnered and produced these documents that were really there to help smooth the transition that the election officials were undertaking. Uh, make sure that they were making those transitions with their security measures in place. It's so much easier to do it when you plan for it than to try to tack them on afterwards and really lessen any operational risk uh, of any transition of voting administration. Great. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. That makes a lot of sense. So we're kind of running short on our time today. We're at the bottom half of the extended half hour. So if I had my way, you know, this has been such a great discussion, we could talk for hours, but we do have to start wrapping up. So as we get towards the end of our time today, I wanted to first off, thank all of our guests for being here and for their vigilance in protecting our election. And I also want to ask them each one final question, and that's about our future elections. Obviously, it may seem a little early, but, you know, the new election cycle is starting uh, already. Then your position on the Election Assistance Commission gives you an overview of the election across the country. Based on what you saw in 2020, what do you think are the key takeaways as to why this election was successful and safe? And what can we do to work on to secure future elections as well? Yeah, thanks for that, John. I mean, first and foremost, you have to give credit to the state and local election officials who did an amazing job running this election. You know, like we heard Paul talk about, I mean, they put their personal health on the line in service of our democracy, and they deserve our thanks, appreciation, and just all the credit in the world. I mean, I think from a federal level, uh, you know, some of the things that we can do, the critical infrastructure designation, you know, really has led to a sea change in information sharing. I think, uh, you know, I think the the analogy or exchanging business cards in a storm gets overused. But part of what Jeff was talking about earlier, you know, the success of the critical infrastructure governance structure, uh, you know, we had government partners, we had private sector partners on that joint working group, and, and we were talking in April with mail vendors about whether or not they were going to have enough capacity for November, you know, with the increased demands and how much they could scale up. If we weren't able to have those conversations quickly, you know, it certainly would have made a difference. I think, again, you also saw a new generation of poll workers step up this year. That made a huge difference. That's always a challenge. From the EVE survey I mentioned earlier, uh, we know in 2018 that 70% of jurisdictions have at least some challenges getting poll workers. I hope a silver lining out this year will be a new generation of Americans will continue to participate. But just really in sum, I think uh, the biggest things are this didn't happen on accident. It happened because people did hard work, uh, because we invested in elections. We've got to keep doing that. Um, you know, whether that's cybersecurity issues, whether it's generally broader election issues, you know, I've said before, and I'll keep saying, you know, that election administration is the infrastructure of our democracy. Uh, you know, I think we have to invest in that. We have to make sure it's strong. And that takes a commitment and it takes a lot of work. And so certainly I appreciate everyone uh, who helps make it stronger. Thank you. Excellent. And we appreciate you showing up and helping to continue those efforts uh, for our audience today, Ben. Paul, first off, thank you for all your work in Okaloosa County. Uh, given what you experienced with this election, which was quite a lot, what are some of the important things that you will be concentrating on and considering in the future? Uh, well, of course, you know, uh, we are, as you mentioned, so we are already preparing for, we have elections in March. So, of course, almost everything that we did and made sure was in place for 
our elections uh, last year. We will be doing for our smaller municipal elections this year, although certainly we won't be expecting a 70-some percent turnout, not that that wouldn't be nice. One of the big takeaways, and, and I didn't mention it as any part of the challenge that we had in 2020, but our part of Florida got hit with not one but two hurricanes at critical times. Gosh, it sure would be nice for us to move move those elections out of hurricane season, but uh, since that's really not an option, uh, you know, you just have to uh, make sure that you have all of your coop plans up to date. Make sure you have your partnerships already in place. Nothing more vitally important than knowing who you can lean on when the rubber meets the road and you have some of those big problems. Uh, of course, constant vigilance when it comes to cybersecurity. Uh, it's one of those things that you don't get to stop and rest because you know you know that the enemy on the other side is not stopping and taking a break either. It's vitally important to continue working with CISA, with CIS, with the EAC, and both MS and EIISAC to make sure you stay current, to make sure that you're doing everything you possibly can to keep your end of the equation correct. In Florida, uh, we have started a new agreement with the state that will uh, give us a better mold for making sure we're doing everything that we know we're supposed to be doing just to have an extra set of checks and balances uh, as we go forward to make sure that we're maintaining everything that we have done thus far to make sure everything stays secure. And until we have herd immunity and the ability to, uh, you know, take those masks off and go back out in public, we'll have to continue to work to uh, slow the spread of COVID to keep our poll workers safe, to keep our voters safe, um, and, you know, just keep learning, stay in touch with the CDC people and your local Department of Health people uh, whenever you need resources. My county uh, risk management people and my county emergency uh, management people were absolutely brilliant this year. You know, they had to come in and deep clean our offices before we could reopen to the public uh, after having that many people test positive in one spot. Uh, you know, just all of that stuff, all of those partnerships are just vitally, vitally important. You can't wait until you need it to start hunting down who who is best to help you. you got to have all of that in place before it happens. Excellent. Well said, Paul. Lewis, this was your first election as the VP of Elections Operations at the Center for Internet Security. How do you think it went, and what do you think are some of the important lessons from 2020 that can help out during future elections? John, as I mentioned, I came in... Uh you know, four or five weeks before the election. So it was certainly a, an interesting time and, and I had a chance to observe things. And and I believe that from a cybersecurity perspective, the 2020 election was a success. I think we can see that after the years of building those partnerships that I keep talking about and the planning and exercising, the elections community executed what we had practiced. Um, obviously, that the lessons learned from previous election cycles helped to you know, develop this year's plan. And uh, as was just mentioned, that another lesson coming out of 2020 is that EIISAC members and state and local government are taking the advisories that they receive seriously and making the necessary adjustments like installing software patches, fixing system configurations, you know, whatever the, um, the necessary fix is. Another point uh, coming out of 2020, I think as we, we look to the future is that as the ISAC, we're able to bring the community together quickly, share that information, address the risks as they're identified. I mean, everything went as smoothly as it did because everyone was prepared. Maintaining that preparation going forward will be key. And as we prepare for those future elections, uh, we will continue to provide support for our election community partners. I mean, we're always going to be there for them in this election space, and, and we're happy and proud to be a part of that. 
Great. Thank you so much, Lewis. Mr. Herring, given the sheer size of your state, I know that running a safe election is always going to be a challenge, but you did it this year. What do you think were the most important factors in that victory and things that you learned uh, moving forward? I'd start with the planning and the building lines of communication and partnerships before the election, right? I mean, that would certainly include tabletop exercises we did, coordination calls, uh, the State Board of Elections and Secure Election Center made training available to all the counting boards of election on basic cybersecurity, hygiene implementation, and cybersecurity awareness. Um, I think that those efforts really paid off. When we did have a cybersecurity incident during the election, and we had some other incidents too, we were already in a position to share resources, to communicate, to coordinate. And that goes for our partners outside the state too. You know, my hat's off to Lewis and his colleagues at the Elections ISAC. Uh, they were really tremendous in the assistance they provided throughout the entire process to the state and counties in New York. Um, and we also had a great partnership, too, Jeff and his colleagues at CISA. We were in daily contact uh, with folks at CISA throughout the period, sharing information, getting updates from them from the federal perspective, too. I think that was that was key. And in many ways, you know, the act of preparing for the election itself helped us to build those lines and those relationships between some of the parts of the state government, like my own part, that we're pitching in to help out. County government and the state board of elections made it cohesive, doing it for the primary and then again for the general election. The second thing that I would highlight, too, is just that this is a long-term project for us, and I think that's an important point to make, too. A lot of the issues around election security are not the kind of things that you can easily address in a single election cycle, right? Particularly when you consider that in New York, for instance, there's 62 different counties and multiplicity of other agencies that are involved in the elections. Um, and whether you're talking about, you know, getting off legacy infrastructure or building up the right infosec expertise on the staffs of each of those organizations, these are long-term projects. I mean, New York, we started in 2016 and 17, and we're still going. I don't see it as a project that has any end date. And so, you know, to the extent that we had success in 2020, much of that was, was predicated on work that started a couple of election cycles beforehand. Makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Mr. Bernardino, you have a lot of experience with election security. In terms of the 2020 election, what do you think was the most important lesson that you learned? And do you have any advice that you can offer about securing future elections? I'll keep it short and sweet. I think, you know, what everything we talked about on this call, we need to treat every election in the future like it was November 2020, uh, regardless of, you know, the circumstances the scrutiny, the media coverage, every, the efforts that we talked about on this, that we apply to it, should be applied every election going forward. Like the speaker said, not to rest on our laurels, but to also continue to increase the efforts. Great. Well, thank you, Mr. Bernardino. That makes a, makes a lot of sense. Uh, I look forward to talking with you on the 2024 show or the 2022 show about elections. Sean, based on everything that you saw during the 2020 election, what do you think went well? And would you have any advice for people charged with ensuring safe elections in our future? Yeah, first of all, I'd like to add my thank you to the folks who work on this noble endeavor. Um, a lot of people don't do this full time, and there are a lot of people who volunteer and don't get paid at all. So thank you very much. I always go back to that old saying that necessity is the mother of, of invention, but I kind of change it a little bit and say necessity is the mother of innovation and protection. And I think what we've learned is that we can kind of walk and chew bubblegum. We can create a secure and, and efficient election system with a mixture of mail-in voting, with a mixture of early voting, with a mixture of same-day voting. And as long as we're vigilant on the security side, and as, as someone just mentioned, don't treat it as if it's ever done because it's never done. Cybersecurity gets in you. It's got to be part of your DNA. It's got to be part of your everyday as you're rolling these things out. So the most important lesson is be ever vigilant. 
Makes sense. Thank you, Sean. Good words. And Jeff, you are one of our newest guests, so I think it's only fair that you get the last word on the show today. I know it's a little early, but what will CIS's election security team focus on in the next election cycle based on what they learned this time around? No pressure. Last word. Uh, no, first, <laughs> thank you for having me. This discussion has been a pleasure. Really, this election was secured due in large part to the incredible efforts and professionalism of election officials and their partners in the private sector. We saw incredible progress from where we were in 2016 and 2018. That progress is seen in the growth of security practices, the planning, patching of vulnerabilities, of network monitoring, of really joining in this robust election security community, improvements to auditability and auditing. At CISA, we're really proud to play a part in supporting election officials as they, as they secure these systems. And we want to continue to build upon this progress, particularly with the small and mid-sized elections jurisdictions. Local election officials are tremendously important in the security of this critical sector. Uh, reaching them, getting them the help, and more importantly, getting them the resources that they need uh, was a big focus of ours leading up to 2020, and that's going to be our continuing focus going forward. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I'd like to thank all of our guests for an amazing discussion today. I learned a lot, and I'm sure our audience did as well. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information on how Kerasoft can assist you in securing your upcoming elections, please visit www.kerasoft.com or email us at electionsecurity at Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.